0: You're listening to the Crypto Curry Club podcast with Erica Stanford. Our guests today include Alex Royal. Alex is Chief Compliance Officer and Head of Regulation at Archax. Our second guest is Rodney Prescott, Chief Technology Officer with Global Block, and our third guest is Timo Layers, co-founder of Swarm Markets, the world's first licensed DeFi platform.
1: This episode of the Crypto Curry Club podcast is brought to you by Swarm Markets, the world's first licensed DeFi platform.
0: So, hey, super excited to be joined here on a focus about crypto fiat. I'm happy to be joined here by Timur from Swarm Markets, Alex from Archex and Rodney from Global block looking at the ongoing questions on, on centralization versus decentralization, which has, has longer potential and, and more potential, and looking specifically at the ongoing debate between AMO and K by C checks for safety and, and abiding with regulation versus innovation. And the first question to, to throw at you all, there's a, an ongoing debate, which I hear with pretty much every crypto and DeFi startup and, and company looking at where to meet the right balance of, of AML and KYC and sort of wanting to stay on the right side of the law and, and being safe and being secure versus not hindering innovation and, and sort of not going against the, the ethos of decentralization. How does one meet that right balance between AML and KYC and and not stifling innovation. Uh, Timo, I'm going to start with you there because you've got a a platform that's sort of notoriously or or, or known for for being almost the first one to to be a decentralized platform looking at regulation. How have you got about that and where do you see the right balance is?
2: Well, I mean, I think the, you know, basically it's a matter of making it as little uh, intrusive as possible, right? So, when it comes to uh, AML and KY, I mean, first of all, I think on the AML side, um, you know, you would have to, the way we kind of approach it is that, you know, we allow people to kind of um, engage with like smaller amounts of capital without like having too many questions asked about where the money comes from, et cetera, et cetera. But then once you reach certain limits, then, you know, other processes kick in. And then, you know, obviously, if there's some, some activities that we, we don't uh, like, then, you know, that kind of triggers further activity in the background. So I think... Um, There, there's like AML itself is kind of, you can kind of try to build that in a way that's makes it like as, as little intrusive as possible. Um, And, uh, but, but in end of the day, it is, there's like no compromising there, right? It is what it is. And, and you kind of have to do uh, certain things around AML. Um, And, and so there's no way about it really. And, and for KYC, it's a little bit different because um, the way we approach KYC is, um, in some ways um, similar to what you would see on any kind of centralized exchange in the sense that if you go through like the onboarding process of, let's say FTX or some other exchange, you would have to, and and, you know, you have the, let's say, intent to do like meaningful amounts of trading and deposits and withdrawal. Um, You know, those processes are, are, you know, quite similar to what you see on uh, swarm markets as well. But with the main difference that once you have onboarded on swarm markets, Uh, What happens from a technical standpoint is that we issue an NFT that gets um, uh, transferred into the wallet that has been registered for that particular user and or multiple wallets if they choose to register multiple wallets. And it's only once they have that uh, KYC approval in the form of an NFT in their wallet that they can actually do something um, on swarm markets. And so that basically is the way that we have approached it. And we think that, you know, if you're serious about doing something on a, on a trading venue, you are going to be willing to go through that process. We don't think that people that are serious about what they want to do from a trading point of view, uh, just because you have KYC, because it's like, you know, it's kind of, um, it is the benchmark that you, you are doing KYC and I don't think many people are, um, objecting um, much, um, to, to do it um as such i think there are, most people are quite used to it anyway
0: thank you and rodney i remember being on a panel with you it must have been 2017 possibly early 2018 at london and partners talking about the the potential of, of decentralization and if decentralized crypto companies really can go forward i mean this this was a while ago but what what are you feeling about that now and and do you think that's that, that that is possible for, for fully decentralized crypto companies to progress, or where do you see the balances being between meeting AML and KYC? Well, I,
1: I do, because, um, again, as Timo said, it depends on the values that you're doing and whether they're serious. So if they're serious traders and it's actually a commercial enterprise, i.e. that's how they make a living out of it or it's significant, then depending on its jurisdiction, they're going to have to worry about KYC, or because you can assume at some stage they're probably going to want some fiat as well. So I, I, I think... I think the critical thing is how easy can you make it and how seamless. So I like the way TMAF talking about the token. That's, that makes sense. So you're not actually passing over the details, but you're, you're passing over. You know, that's a valid person. It's like when you go to a bar, something, they don't need to know your home address or your bank account. All they need to know is you're over 18. That, that's all they need to know. So those sort of confirmations, I think of the way it's going to go forward. Um, also, thinking a bit more globally because I've just done a whole lot with Cardano and we are talking about governance and one of the really critical things is your digital identity. You should control it. You should be able to handle it. The question is who should be controlling it, again, jurisdictions but you could apply that to KYCML so you can pass sufficient information and in fact if you look at some of the cryptographic primitives um, like zero knowledge proofs, you know that the thing is in a valid range but you don't know all the specifics about the transaction or you don't... you could think applying some of those things. And if you talk to a lot of the regulators, it had a wee bit to do with the FCA, and I'm sure Alex can have a comment. They don't always say exactly how you are to do it. They are saying what information you should be aware of. And as Timo said, you know, he'd look, I'm sure their system looks for past pens. So if someone's trading a large number of 5,500 pounds quite regularly, you'd probably be going, hang on, every half hour there's 500 pounds going in or something. I mean, that's that's a really silly example. But you can start to see, even if it's below the normal KYC AML or if it's – they can look for particular things. And I I think it's going to be there. I don't – I think a lot of people get worried and say it's going to destroy innovation, it's not going to help decentralisation or the KYC AML. And there is some truth to that, but a lot of it is because they don't want to deal with it. Or it's been pushed by incumbents because they want to put a barrier to people to entry. I, th- I don't think you need to think about that it's there; it is there. I think the better thing to think about is how can you do it smarter, more efficiently, and what can you do to remove some of those barriers.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, Alex uh, Rodney asked me to to put the hardest question to you, so we'll we'll do that by going to you Fed. I mean, obviously, you're coming from checks from a sort of one of the the few regulated entities and you've had your your deal of of dealing with with regulators presumably in in sorting that um how have you find, found that balance to work for for you guys over at archex or in general
3: yeah, yeah i mean i think it's really interesting listening to to of to the comments and, and and like yourself erica i've you know listened to a lot of the the debate that kind of goes back and forward and i think that we're we're at a very interesting um kind of time in 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 uh, the kind of the interface between the regulator and innovation. Um, I think when we talk about AML, KYC and these requirements, uh, a lot of the times uh, I think it gets lost in the fact that these are, these are very, these need to be an outcome focused process it needs to you know why do we do this well we do aml kyc because we don't want to create systems that can be used for illicit financing reasons but a lot of the debate that we have at the moment comes around the encumbrance on users and we need to take this this kind of commercial view and it gets and it gets very very heavily lost in the you know the actual kind of process and i think the regulators are starting to kind of um Apply a disproportionate amount or or requirement on, um, probably on the crypto side, because of uh, they're getting incredibly incredibly heavily focused on the process and how we do things and why they need to be done without as team uh, as we've said, uh, without giving any kind of guidance as to what good looks like or how the industry should should um you know respond to that and 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 it's creating quite a a kind of uh you know i don't want to use hostile but it does seem a, a sort of a very you know kind of hostile environment where you know the regulators or, or certain regulatory bodies are now being accused of being anti-innovation um in in the way that they're applying uh, uh applying some of these things and i and i think a, a kind of a, a reframing of the debate and a a, a good understanding by Kind of everyone in the industry as to why AML and kyc checks exist and, and actually the um, the benefit that they that they that they provide and, and the fact that we should broadly have a, a zero tolerance risk approach to financial crime um, in order to to better promote the legitimacy of, of of these new and novel asset classes is 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 the the net outcome everyone everyone wants to get to but you know and, and, and it's the approach that I think most people need to take and uh, in order to, pro- to promote innovation as much as possible. I agree with Timo's point. I think everyone's used to going through AML, KYC. I don't think it's, you know, it's new. I don't think it's an encumbrance for anyone coming to crypto. I don't really think anyone's really complaining about it too much other than, other than the firms that are trying to get regulators happy.
1: I'd just add an extra on there, Alex. I totally agree with you. But if you're dealing with emerging markets, not all of them have any the identity that would normally meet uh, an FCA regulatory KYC, AML. Exactly. Um, so, and, and having done a whole lot with Kadana and work with the guys out of Africa, it's an interesting challenge. So, yeah. giving some identity is really important. And I think yeah. I like your comment it's the outcomes you want and, and why you're doing it, not, yeah. oh, we need 50 copies of this and it has to be this form of this passport. It can only be a G7 ish. You know, all that. there's a whole lot of seemingly silly comments, but I, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I just wanted to add that. Because we're thinking, you know, I certainly think a lot more globally, obviously with Global Block, I'm more UK because that's where we we operate. But I I think you need to think about things globally and it's worth taking into account why you're doing it rather than, well, we have to have this and have that.
3: Yeah, I think just kind of just to add that because it's a really interesting uh, point that that you raise there and that's the global, the idea of, you know, the globalisation and with that, um, the concept of financial exclusion and what we're seeing at the moment, you know, there are a number of, uh, you know, we're at the cusp of potentially something that could truly revolutionise and, um, you know, uh, the fi- financial industry and open up financing and, you know, the, uh, the financial markets to every single person on on the on the um, on the face of the planet in a completely uniform um, way. And the way that. AML and KYC systems are set up at the moment, particularly with people like FATF, etc. You you have these cohorts of people who define what countries are on a blacklist or not on a blacklist and who can and can't do things. And and you effectively exclude vast numbers of of people from being able to access these systems and really start to benefit in the way that that the majority of the world. Afghanistan is a prime example now. Every single citizen of of Afghanistan has basically been financially excluded. Even, you know, Western Union won't even process it. And they are the people that require and need this more than, you know, more than anything else. So, you know, to to take it back to to um, to the beginning. Um, and, and what Simon was talking about, you know, we do need to to deal with this in a, produ- a productive and a proactive way, and we need to move away from probably the, the current norms of of AML KYC and find innovative solutions, but that are as robust as possible in order to to, to have a zero, um, you know, zero risk tolerance to financial crime.
0: And I mean, it's a super important point because I mean, like like all of you have said it's one thing if you look at UK citizens, for example, where, you know, the majority of us have got ID and a digital identity and so forth, that, that's one thing. But if you look at sort of crypto going back, the the, the vast number of, of users and the, the largest users aren't in the UK or in America. It's it's Venezuela, it's, it's Ukraine, it's places where, you know, for, for varying reasons, people don't have that trust in the government, the banking system, or they've got hyperinflation, or, you know, all aspects that are out of citizens' control for the most part, and I have led huge numbers of population to crypto who need these solutions far more than arguably we do sitting here in London or wherever we all are. So it, it, it's a super valid point as to how that can be brought about on yeah. a worldwide basis.
2: I, I think I think when it comes to the jurisdictions, it's uh, I mean, the way we approach it is basically, you know, being regulated uh, in Germany with Buffin. Um, where where they basically classified all you know crypto basically or the activity to trade crypto requires a license right because crypto is a financial instrument in Germany, and so it means that I mean we've we've basically uh, implemented like a a two tiered model currently where like if you're trading less than five thousand euros you're uh, you only have to qualify with what we call tier one, which is a, like a lighter approach to qualification from a KYC point of view. And it allows you to make those transactions up to 5,000 euros. But then beyond that, you're, you, you have to go through and, and upgrade yourself, so to speak. Um, and so we're using the analogy of a passport. So your passport is either tier one or tier two. If it's tier two, then you're in the next category and then you can trade virtually unlimited amounts of capital. But then there are other um, AML checks in the background. Kind of monitoring what's going on and whether it looks like, you know, um, legit activity or not. And then obviously there's a source of funds, uh, checks and things like that for larger uh, fiat deposits and, and 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 such things. So I think it's possible to build like a tiered architecture by which you can actually accommodate, let's say, you know jurisdictions that have they get a lot of value out of just doing like sub five thousand euro transactions on a Ven- on a DeFi platform, and and they think that you know it's actually a great thing to have access to that, and then but we're also able to at the same time accommodate for higher value kind of users that have you know uh, kind of a higher requirement as to how they would need to engage and participate in in the activity. So I think you can build a technical solution for 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 both or like let's say for a broader category of users. And then, you know, from a jurisdiction view, we're following basically the, you know, obviously the OFAC uh, recommendations for country participation and lists and blocking anything that's um, on such lists. And also at current, we're uh, not allowing US users uh, simply because we're not sure like how the SEC would view a decentralized licensed trading venue in Europe. There's no precedence for how they would view such an activity. So we're staying out of that for now.
0: No, thank you. And, and moving on to the, the trading side of things, I mean, Tim, we've already spoken previously about sort of seeing the decentralized uh, approach as potentially preferable even for gaining investment. But what, where do you see as uh, sort of the advantages or disadvantages of, of going for a decentralized uh, model over a centralized market structure, looking at, at lending and trading between equities and, and other securities?
2: Well, so I mean, on the positive side, I mean, the way we look at it is that there's a certain amount of like, um, you know, the the self custody aspect of a DeFi solution for advanced users is is a uh, is a plus, right? So it's like it's something that uh, people appreciate if they're used to dealing with DeFi platforms to have control of your own own funds. And in the case of let's say institutional engagement, you have the control of using what, whichever custodian that you see fit, and that has actually passed through your compliance as a as an institutional um, kind of trader or, or investor. So we think that self-custody is important. And then we also think that the composability that comes with uh, decentralized architecture is super exciting because then you can always, all of a sudden start using your collateral or sorry, your assets as collateral across various platforms, not only on the venue that we're providing, but also, you know, connecting that to other, Um, other partners that we have in our ecosystem. So we think that that architecture is, uh, you know, has a lot of benefits um, simply because of that. And like one tangible example is like, if you have, let's say, if you're trading tokenized stock on, let's say something like an FTX, um, it's, it's, that stock is stuck on that venue. Whereas, you know, if you use like a a tokenized version that sits uh, with a custodian, but that's basically where the token that represents the asset um, is available on a DeFi platform that can be used as collateral for, um, you know, basically on lending platforms and other use cases, or for stablecoin issuance, for example. So there's a number of things that you can do on a decentralized architecture that are, you know, that are not possible, not possible, or, or much more difficult to do in a centralized venue. And then there's also on the on the other side of, you know. Um, DeFi, it is more complicated to operate those platforms. I mean, you kind of have to know what you're doing when it comes to wallets and things like that. And so, over time, we're our objective is to build away those complexities, but you know, give the option to those who want, to, who are advanced users, to uh, want to actually access DeFi using their kind of self custody infrastructure to be able to do that. But then also for other users, we actually want to hide all of that complexity so that they don't really know. Like what's going on, and and they don't necessarily care because they're there to, you know, for a certain kind of investment purpose or a tr- to do a trade or to use some asset as collateral, and they don't really care if it's DeFi or CFI or how it's done. They just want to get their thing done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thank you. And uh, Alex, I mean, what what are your
0: viewpoints on on that on the? centralized versus decentralized for, for trading. Obviously, our checks have gone down a different model.
2: Yeah,
3: I think it's interesting, Timo's last point as well is, you know, I uh, again, listen, listening to a lot of this stuff, a lot of people just want the experience or they just look at the outcome. And I think that, you know, if you had ex- if you had an equivalent outcome for a user uh, and one of them was in a decentralized expression and one of them was in a centralized expression, but the, the outcome was the same, I, I think users would generally be pretty agnostic. Um, in, in terms of the way they do it, so I, I I see it as less as a um is one better than the other. I think maybe one of them is more forward-looking and and likely to be able to iterate and, and and be more innovative. And that's probably on 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 the decentralized side of things. But when we're talking about regulated securities, regulated trading, and we're wanting to start engaging with institutions, and and effectively we're trying to. Increase the efficiency and move the needle on on the incumbent financial services market. I find it. I think it's going to be very difficult to really um, express that to the same um, uh, to the same extent and volumes that you see it today in something that is decentralized. Not because there's a uh, something preventing it other than you would need to take the regulator and all global regulators on a journey with you and get them all to the same point at exactly the same time and i think that would you know that that that's really what's going to be the the struggle here in in the defi you know in a decentralized kind of world whereas you know it's a lot easier to speak to a regulator if they already understand the underlying governance structure and corporate structure of the firms that they're trying to regulate. And I think, you know, that that's kind of why I actually, you know, I think we're probably more likely to see quicker regulated innovation within the centralized side, just because you, you know, the, the, the regulators already get 50% of the journey uh, story. Sorry.
0: Yeah. No, and suddenly when speaking to, to users, they want to know about security and custody and, and, custody exactly. and, and- it more depends on the platform and what they're doing custody-wise, as far as I can see, rather than if it's centralized or decentralized for the actual user experience yeah. in some cases. Rodney, what are your last views on that?
1: I really, Tim and Alex made some really, really good points. And I think the key point is the users don't really care. If they are a regulated or a public company, then they probably do because the auditors are gonna care or their listing requirements have certain controls. So you need to think about some of those challenges. The other thing I think about when I look at DeFi and and CentralFi, CFI is liquidity in range, because you could assume some of the big institutions, some of the bigger players, if you're looking at the traditional finance system getting in there, there's some huge volumes going through some of those platforms, and they want to be able to do the same sort of thing using digital assets, not necessarily one for one, But so in that case, you're going to need to look at, well, who's going to provide the liquidity? What is my security? And what is my custody? Not just, you know, just I used to work with uh, Credo. So I know Credo's just um, set up working with enterprise um, Metamask. So there are ways coming to do custody, you know, on DeFi. But I still go back to, as Alex said, if I'm a regulated entity or, or a public company, I'm, and, and I'm also dealing with regulators, they're going to be a lot more comfortable with something they can see as a structure they understand. Interestingly enough, on some of the DeFi companies that I've seen the US regulators going after, they go after the developer or somebody that's actually registered a company to try sell something. So the platform itself might be decentralized, but they'll look for the person or persons that have actually been running it. So it's, it's a really gray area. Um, you know, I mean, Timo's, mm-hmm. they've got a regulated platform. So effectively, they could be, that still could possibly work for a regulated or a, a company that would look for CFI because German regulators know them, they're accepted, so they've got a point of effectively, you know, not necessarily want to litigate, but they've got that security there. I think those things are going to be really important. And to me, one of the things I'd always look at is, you know, what's the liquidity? What are, what are my outcomes I'm going to try? And DeFi might be an appropriate platform or CFI. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's an
3: interesting point uh, Rodney, that just, just quickly to do that, you know, as of someone who used to work sort of on the regulator side, you know, one of the first questions that, that they will come up with is if we need to take a regulatory action, where do, we, where, where do we point the email at? Where do we point the letter at? Where do we, you know, where's the door that we go kick down at 5 a.m. in order to get, you know, that and, and when the answer to that is ethereal, they, you know, that they're, they're immediately incredibly nervous. So genuine DeFi, you know, kind of smart contract-controlled ways of of doing anything is is, I think, from a regulatory point, it's going to require a paradigm shift in the way regulators conceive, um, you know, uh, conceive compliance and regulation before that can really that can really just kind of kick off. And I think we'll end up seeing a lot of kind of hybrids. Uh, you know, hybrid kind of structures. Um, you know, before we slowly get there, um, yeah, and I hopefully do. that won't encumber innovation too much.
0: Well, I'm I'm part time at CMS, the, the law firm, and have sat in some very interesting conversations about what happens in a DAO. Who do they go after? How can that be? So, you know, e- even in the most decentralised platforms, there's still the exact same questions on from a legal regulatory point of view the same who who is ultimately liable what will
1: happen i was going to say i've just spent a bit of time at the university of wyoming and they helped craft the dow legislation so i've actually talked to some of the people out there for some stuff i was doing and what's really interesting is they do have a dow but guess what there's still a named party behind it yeah no they haven't changed that
2: so it's not much different for a company but I think it's, you know, it has to be hybrid models. If you talk about like licensed activities such as cust- custody services and trading services, it's like, because otherwise you end up in this kind of uh, pancake bunny scenario where there's like nobody to go after. You don't know who's operating the, the platform. And like nobody is serious is going to put like, you know, institutional capital on a platform like that. So they, they can't, right? And we're seeing that with even with like well-respected platforms such as Ave, they can't onboard institutional capital, because they they can't uh, basically um, identify the counterparties that's doing the peer-to-peer lending on their platform. So therefore they've you know they've formed this thing called Ave Arc because there everybody has to be um, identified as counterparties and then you can all of a sudden bring in institutional capital. So that's that's where the you know that's where the world is right now. I think it'll take a very long time before DeFi gets to a point where it gets like generally kind of embedded into legislation with regulators but you actually have to do these hybrid solutions such as the one that we've done, which is based on a you know, fully decentralized infrastructure, in this case, Ethereum, and, and then also we're doing Polygon. But, I mean, at the same time, we have these centralized functions which are related to our licensing structure and the things that are, let's say, requirements in order to operate under that license, which are obviously reporting and onboarding and KYC and AML checks and all the other requirements that are associated with custodial services and trading services. So how are you going to do that? Like... Even with a DAO, you could argue that you can kind of vote for, you know, the designation of those roles, but they would still have to be distinctly identified individuals or organizations that fulfill those roles. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart, right? Uh, So it comes to counterparty, you know, identification and and, uh, certainty. That's the whole basis of which trust is built once you get to the regulated level. Now, you can build like trust on something like Ethereum once you understand how that operates but that's not the same kind of trust that you're looking for when, you, when you're when you operating like under regulatory licensing. So it's just two, two, two different things and two different trust structures. Guys,
0: it's, it's an ongoing debate, but thank you all so very much for your time and points of view on this conscious of, of times. But uh, thank you so much, Rodney, Timo, and Alex for joining us. And hopefully we'll have more of these debates in person in the not too far future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you
1: This episode of the Crypto Curry Club podcast is brought to you by Swarm Markets, the world's first licensed D5 platform.